good food, first of all, promotes good health. It's food. I think every bite is an opportunity to improve our health. Uh, some people say that it either improves your health or, you know, makes it worse. I don't know if that's always the case, but certainly it's an opportunity. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 242. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to another fabulous episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today, I have Brigitte Jem, who lives in Vancouver, Canada, and we had such a fantastic conversation. I think this is a really good episode for those of you that are struggling to get into the swing of cooking and preparing your meals at home, or if you're new to cooking, this is really fantastic. But we also talk about environmentalism and some of those topics. So Brigitte Jem is passionate about helping more people eat plants. She loves to empower others to take charge of their health and live in line with their values. On her website, veganfamilykitchen.com, she teaches workshops about all aspects of plant-based cooking and nutrition. Her meal planning clients know her as a batch cooking wizard. Before deciding to change careers to teach healthy vegan cooking, Brigitte trained as a sociologist of education and managed research projects in academia. Aside from a PhD in education from UBC, she obtained a certificate in plant-based nutrition from the University of Winchester. She lives in Vancouver, Canada, British Columbia, yay, yay, with her husband and two kids, all of whom are very active and always hungry. So we talk about her plant-based vegan story, how she transitioned this way from a life of environmentalism and environmental activism writing in that area and how it led her to a plant-based diet. We talk about what is, quote, really good food, why people should cook more at home, why people struggle so much with cooking, tips that she has for people that want to get better at cooking, and how we can find joy in the kitchen. How can we start to find joy with the cooking process? And how can we make it more efficient and time-saving? Is that possible? I don't know. We're going to talk about it. So it's a great conversation. I know you'll love it. She has some great thoughts and ideas, and you can tell that she is a wonderful teacher in this area. So veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here, listening to these episodes week after week. I appreciate you so much. Also, please keep the feedback coming. Many of you have been reaching out on Instagram, telling me what you wanna hear, who you wanna hear from. Keep it coming. 
That helps us so much. We want to hear this. You can also email me, yami, Y-A-M-I, at dryami.com. That's spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-M-I.com. And send us your feedback and your requests. This is for you. We make this for you. I mean, also for me, because it's one of my favorite things to do in my whole world, in my whole life. But it couldn't be possible without you. So thank you so much. Okay, again, we love you. We appreciate you. And now let's welcome Brigitte Jem. Welcome, Brigitte Jem. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> Beautiful. It doesn't get any better. It's so nice to have you on the show. It's so great to connect again. And I'm super excited about this topic. As always, helping people with cooking is a big deal because it is so central to making sure that we're eating healthfully and able to adapt it to our lifestyles. But before we get to some of the nitty gritty and some of the great tips that you can teach us, I want to hear your story. So share with us your plant-based vegan story. How did you discover this way of eating? I used to be a sociologist of science. I say used to be, although it's still a big part of me, but I was an academic researcher for a long time very interested in controversies. So I was definitely prepared to get in the realm of nutrition a little later in life, though I didn't know at the time. And I also fancied myself as a little bit of as um, an environmentalist, you know, somebody who grew up at the same time as recycling was becoming really important and wanting to do the right thing. And though I was raised in the like farmland, I eventually ended up in the big city going to university. I thought it was very important to walk and ride my bike everywhere. And after finishing my PhD, I went into research management more than doing my own research. And I was supporting clean energy research, writing all those white papers and grant applications, explaining how wonderful all the stuff that our great chemical engineering researchers were doing uh, was going to be, changing the world with batteries, electric cars, all the things. And being a very curious person, I was reading quite broadly about environmental issues and the technologies we were developing. And one day it dawned on me that although all of that was great, it had no chance whatsoever of really making a solid dent into our environmental footprint, whether it was for climate change or preserving biodiversity and all that basically within our lifetime, you know, and the pace of change that was required was so much faster than what technology had to deliver. And basically what we had to do was radically cut our environmental footprint. And that did not sit well with me. And I was quite uncomfortable with that knowledge. And at the same time, at about the same period, I was in this, I was a big time bike commuter and, you know, bike commuters. If you think it's tough to have people ask you, you know, where do you get your protein from? Well, try to have somebody run you off the road with a hammer, you know, or with a a big car. That's what cycling commuters have, you know, been through for many years. There's all these culture wars between cars and bikes. And so there's this solidarity, you know, between bike commuters. And one day on a bike commuting forum, somebody told me, you know what, if you're riding your bike, fueling yourself with steak, you might as well be driving a Hummer. And that really hit me deep. And it threw into question 
so much about my life, thinking of myself as a good, eco-friendly person, you know, and I had never, ever in my whole life, despite working in clean energy and all that, given serious thought to the question of where does my food come from? What's the environmental footprint of the stuff I eat? And that was shocking and humbling, although I'm sure that on the spur of the moment, I had some smart reply for the person, and I apologize publicly to this person that I had the conversation with. But, you know, you never know when you say something to someone online. Maybe it percolates and months or years later, they see the light. And and for me, that was the case. I started reading on all this issue of environmental footprint of food. And I was a steak lover. I loved blue cheese. And I was not feeling good about it anymore. And I decided, well, I got to take one for the team. Good citizen. You know, I will stop eating meat and cheese and eggs at home, uh, but I will still eat it outside the home. And it was only about a couple of years later that having in the meantime started paying more attention also to issues of ethics around animal rights. I was, I had my second child and I was breastfeeding him. And, you know, you may remember middle of the night, sleep deprivation and having all these thoughts and looking at my little baby that was a few weeks old, you know, a tiny little thing in my arms. And thinking, what if somebody came and took my child, did who knows what with him, because also he was a boy, and, you know, to, to take my milk. That's not cool. And I'm I'm not like an animal lover. I'm never someone who will go and hug a cow. I think cows are quite big and dangerous. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they exist, but um, I don't want to snuggle with them. And... That was not my motivation. My motivation was this interspecies solidarity, but also a feeling just it was ethically wrong. And that morning when I kind of woke up, um, I decided it was over and I, I was going to be vegan um, for for life after that. So health was not a big consideration for me at the time. I'd even say that I thought the health claims were a little bit overspoken by vegan activists. You know, I'm like it's not possible that this diet would be, you know, so wonderful for health reasons. There's, you know, it's not going to hurt you, but it, it's not a silver bullet. And I still think that it's, you know, eating vegan is, is not a silver bullet. It's not a shield against every disease. But certainly I've discovered in the meantime how serious the claims of um, nutritional superiority, I think, of a, a whole foods plant-based diet, not a vegan donut and burger <laughs> diet, um, but it can really make a big difference in life. And I think as I'm getting a bit older, um, those are definitely things that are becoming more important for me and seeing uh, relatives, age, and other people around me wanting to share the plant love with more and more people and giving them the the tools they need to feed themselves in a way that agrees better, not just with their values uh, and the planet, but also with with their health. Yeah. Wow. What an impactful story. I love that you shared that. And isn't it interesting that it does seem like there is this disconnect within the environmental activism culture where obviously these are very passionate people, so passionate about saving the planet and the earth, but yet it's almost like there's a whole piece that nobody talks about. Why do you think that is? Is it is it this is it a denial? Is the knowledge just not available? Why do you think it doesn't make it into those circles as often as we think it should? Thank you for asking that. I I'm not sure 
Um, I think part of the issue is, I mean, seven years or eight years ago, um, I don't think it was quite the same, but I think to the, now there's a lot more environmentally aware people that will eat less meat or no meat, basically go vegan for environmental reasons. Uh, but as you say, it's not something that's talked about very much. It's changing a little bit, but largely, I think there's the same concerns in many of us activists or, or educators in this issue, the fear of alienating other people. And I think that's a really big concern, the fear that if we say that, and it's true, if you mention you know anything about food people get their backs off the up the wall you know being cons are you attacking me saying i'm a bad person for loving the food i love and there's also ignorance i think on the nutritional end of things and there's also i gotta say the true reality that for example i mean there are a lot of people on planet earth for whom a plant-based diet is would be very difficult or not possible. There's lots of people that live on islands where they cannot grow chickpeas. <laughs> they have to eat fish, you know. But for us in North America, that is not the case. We have plenty of land. Actually, we're using that land, unfortunately, to grow animal feed. But I think there's always this issue within the environmental movement of wanting to say things that are universally true also and just being uncomfortable. But I think it will take maybe another five, ten years. I hope it's not too late um, to get more people to be more open and on board about that. I can really see the change, but it's been slow coming. Yeah. Well, for an environmental person that's aware of all this, I, I have to say, I'm just going to be completely honest. I was talking to um, my friend about this earlier today. I purposely don't keep track of current events or news because it's too depressing to me. So for a person that's really tuned into that, do you find yourself going through periods of hopelessness and feeling like we're doomed, it's too late? Oh, the pain, the pain. <laughs> I, it's funny, I'm reading right now uh, a book uh, that um, Douglas Abrams is writing with, wrote with um, Jane Goodall about hope i think it's just called the book of hope and asking her you know do you have hope and i'm not blind i see the news i i feel like i have to look at the news to some extent uh, but when i see oddly now news about environmental issues there was a big glacier that calved recently you know a big chunk of ice that separated from the chunk of land it used to be attached to and I I see the headline and I just won't read this because I I get this feeling of like told you so, <laughs> you know. And I, I don't I don't want to read it. I don't need to know any more details. I already know uh, the the sad story of it. But I do get hope in um, how many more people today are talking about the issue. I get hope in hearing, and that's more on the chronic disease front because I think chronic disease is a massive environmental problem. Because it's so expensive that it keeps us hooked to economic growth because we have to pay for chronic disease. So we need to keep on building gizmos and making more money to pay for the explosive growth rate of, of healthcare, right? And I see coming from the medical body now in a way that we didn't see five years ago. I mean, I'm hoping you see it too. People that come into public forums and say, my doctor told me I had to go plant-based 
uh, what do I do, right? And you didn't see that just five years ago. So the pace of change is there. It's picking up a little bit. I don't think, I mean, I'm not a scientist of that style, but, you know, I, I don't think it's possible to have the kind of world harmony that would lead us to stop emissions to get at 1.5 degree kind of thing. I mean, there there are catastrophic changes already underway, but can it slow down? Can we be maybe forced by our own, the crises we've caused ourselves to slow down and maybe reduce our emissions involuntarily because of a crisis? I think there's possible hope there, but... It depends on the day you ask me. Yeah, I get that. I can, I can see that in your face that it it's hard. But I agree, too. I think that there is room for hope. And I've definitely seen things turn around. You know, I've been vegan plant-based for it'll be almost 12 years in a few months. And so things have definitely changed. People are paying attention for all the reasons for the health reasons, for the environmental reasons, and for the ethical reasons. And I love how you brought up that you are not an animal lover. That's the very first line of my TEDx talk, because I'm the same way. Like, I'm not the kind of person that's going to have a bumper sticker on my car that says we'll break for everything. Of course I will, but I don't, It's that's not my personality type, you know? So I think it's important for people to know that to make these choices, you don't have to be some sort of diehard animal lover that's going to start a sanctuary and goes and hugs all the animals. You don't. That doesn't have to be the case for you to start making changes. So thank you for sharing that. Let's move on to some of the ideas that you presented in your book. One of them that you talked about is really good food. So trying to help people differentiate what to eat, really, and and why we should be cooking. But before we get to the why we should be cooking, what is really good food? Give us some of the characteristics of that. It's not just food. It's not good food. It's really good food. So it's, you know, A plus kind of food. And the first thing I'll say is that it's aspirational. It's not something that I manage to manifest every single night at 6 p.m. in my family. And I think for most of us, it has to be something to aim toward. Just like we can't be perfect vegan, we can have a perfect dinner every night. But good food, first of all, promotes good health. It's food. I think every bite is an opportunity to improve our health. Uh, some people say that it either improves your health or you know makes it worse. I don't know if that's always the case, but certainly it's an opportunity. So that's the first idea for me. The second idea is that as much as possible, it has to be kind to the planet. And take into consideration the fact that with eight billion people on earth, the way we've been eating in North America for the last hundred years just cannot continue. So when we make food choices, it has to be a choice that considers how many people we share the planet with. And although it may not be the choice that will be possible for everybody, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, if everybody eats like me, what would be the consequences of this? And clearly, um, meat will not make the cut if that's the criteria. Another characteristic of good food is food that avoids unnecessary suffering. There is suffering in everything, as the Buddhists among us know. Um, it's not possible to have food that does not include any suffering whatsoever. But there's clearly different levels of suffering out there. And I, I strongly believe that industrial animal agriculture is 
the best example of the worst thing we can do, really, in terms of suffering. The amount of suffering that's involved is tremendous, mind-boggling, painful to look at. And so if we wouldn't take a class of third graders to the slaughterhouse, well, why do we even support that at all? I'm perfectly comfortable having my children witnessing the suffering of a carrot. That's okay. But um, that's a level of suffering I'm comfortable with, right? But the level of suffering that is involved in farming animals, I don't feel great about. There's going to be people, we still haven't sorted out how to do um, even vegetable agriculture without suffering. There's a lot of abuse that's going on there and we need to work to improve that. But at least we can take care of the most unnecessary aspects, which is animal agriculture. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Yeah, let me interject for a second. Like, um, you know, cumulative because yeah, they're suffering in all, all modernization of food and there's abuse in all modernization of food, but whenever you're doing animal agriculture, it's cumulative. It's not just for the humans, it's also for the animals, and it is just intensely damaging to the earth. And I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable saying, okay, well, I care about the animals and I don't want the animals to suffer. But if you just even think about the humans involved and how much mental health trauma they're getting from slaughter or from seeing animals in these conditions. And then their health, their physical health being exposed to some of the vapors and the feces and these super bugs that we're breeding, like super bugs, like these infections that can't even be treated because they're resistant to all these antibiotics. That is cumulative suffering. So, um, you know, just being open 
to considering that that's actually happening and not being in denial about it, I think is important. So sorry to interrupt on that. Absolutely. Oh, no, so true. And I mean, it's just there's the um, intensification under extreme capitalism, let's put it that way, of food production that we've seen. And a book that I read by somebody who's not a vegan, um, a book called The Chain explains the transformation of, of pork, the pork industry, pig farming in the United States over the years, and how the you know, the number of animals per hour in the slaughterhouse, for example, used to be something like 900 kills per hour. And with deregulation, they've gone up and pushed the envelope to 1,200 and 1,300 animals per hour. And other than the psychological aspects of it, which I can't even imagine, they're sharp knives. Um, I have a friend who used to be a union representative in a poultry uh, processing plant, as they say um, euphemistically in, in Quebec, and the number of people that would cut their body parts. And sometimes because it's accelerating so much, they can't sharpen their knives anymore. So they get blunt and then they're more likely to get injured. And the reason for this acceleration is that people want more meat and they want it to be more cheap and they don't want to pay for it. And the whole thing is a disaster and it's just a disaster that's getting basically worse and worse if we do nothing else about it. So not a happy thing. And connected to that is, is this idea of coming from love. And there is no love in a poultry processing plant, but there's also not a whole lot of love in the kitchen at McDonald's and the kitchens, the industrial kitchens of, for example, very large food providers, like I think it's called Cisco. You know, they have these big trucks and they deliver pre-made bits and bobs of food to restaurants and grocery stores and all sorts of other institutions. And that's not the food from your nana. You know, it, it is not food that is made with love. It's food that's made by people who'd rather have a different job. And many play in many cases, it's food that's made in conditions where the only goal is to maximize profit. Food that's made for commercial benefits, not food that's made to help us grow and help us show up and be our best. So definitely the food I serve to my family, again, it won't be perfect, but I, I try to put love in it. And I think that's part of what makes really good food. And of course, it has to taste good because if all I've just said above results in green, brown, mushy substance that is very nutritious, but not at all appealing and maybe just a bit too bitter, it's a failure. And so definitely trying to make things uh, taste good is a big part of this. There is a lot of pleasure to be gained in the food we eat. And that is what makes it really good. But again, I want to emphasize this is all aspirational. We can't succeed on all those counts every single night or even most nights, but it's worth giving it a shot and keeping trying. Yeah. And just because you can't be perfect doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get better at it and try to meet as many of those areas as you can. But um, yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. It sounds like a win-win-win to me to be able to meet all those criteria. Oh, sounds yeah. like a great thing. So why should people cook at home? Oh, yes. I actually, for the first time, saw a study this week. I'm sure there's others, but it, it never had crossed my desk before of how we make food choices when we eat out and when we cook at home. And it reminded me of my behavior around Christmas cookies. Once a year, I decide to make Christmas cookies. Or 
sometimes like birthday cake, but like the special birthday cake. And then there needs to be icing, for example. But let's go back to the cookies. So cookies, I look at the cookie recipe and to make the traditional cookies, it requires a ton of fat and a ton of refined sugar. And I can't bring myself to do it. And my cookies are always a failure because I always try to you know, take the traditional recipe, not the healthy recipe, and try to tweak it. And can I reduce the sugar? Well, you can reduce it maybe by 5%, but when you get down to like minus 20%, it messes up the whole thing and it doesn't work. And I really struggle to make those things at home. Now, take me to the coffee shop and tell me, do you want a cookie? Like, sure. And I will eat the cookie and I will not spend one second thinking about all the fat and the sugar that inevitably is in that same cookie because I know they didn't make it with like flaxseed and applesauce and all the things I would have used if I tried to modify that cookie. And there is, it's weird, but humans are like that in modern civilization. When we eat out, we are, according to studies, it's not even me just saying it, we are looking for tasty and that's great for the restaurants because they want us to come back. And the way to make us come back, because we find the food tasty, is to add salt, sugar, and fat to the food and serve it with plenty of butter. I remember even before I was vegan, I would sometimes look at, um, I love pasta with like a sauce, and there's this carbonara recipe that I would really enjoy. It's but then one day I looked at the recipe because I was like, oh, maybe I could do this at home. And it was egg yolks and bacon. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this is even back then I wouldn't do that at home. But if I was at a restaurant, I would have it without questions. And the more we eat at restaurants, the more we end up making those choices that are driven by taste, pretty much only by taste and very little by what the researchers call the motives, which are. Yes, taste, pal palatability, you know, how good it feels to eat it is one thing, but there's also healthiness and there's also other values that are beyond ourselves like ethics and environment and all of these other things. So when we make those decisions at home, we just make better choices. But somehow when we step outside the house and we're in front of a menu, those considerations become very loose, even for the most ethical people among us. And that's definitely, I think, the number one reason why we need to get into our own food, because we also need to know, we benefit from knowing what's inside the food we eat. Um, and it's empowering, moving from this posture of being a consumer to being a creator of food. And I'm not meaning you know, food as a creative outlet and making things look amazing necessarily. I mean, if that's your your jam, that's fantastic and you have my support, but it's not, I'm not a food decorator, a food stylist at all. Um, not for me, but having this empowerment that comes from even doing the simplest thing like pizza dough. Pizza dough is flour, salt, yeast, and water. Maybe a tiny bit of sugar to feed the yeast. Like, why have we given the God granted right to make pizza to the pizza man across the street. That's just the simplest thing in the world. And when you make it for the first time, it's like, whoa, I can make pizza. <laughs> There's such a good feeling about it. And I think it's, it's really just like growing food has become very remote for most people. It's become this thing that 
happens somehow and then there's a black box and poof, food appears at the supermarket. In an urban world, I don't. I think it's great that there's all these school gardens and local gardening initiatives, but the, at the end of the day, there's going to be mostly a separation between agriculture and urban life. But cooking, cooking we can still do and we have to keep some level of control over as much as we can. We can't just in basically one or two generations allow this legacy to disappear um, and lose complete control over soup. Like soup is such an easy thing to do. It's so empowering to feed yourself really good soup. It doesn't have to come out of a can. And I really hope that more people can buck the trend. I mean, I'm this is a this is a Don Quixote against the windmills, you know, to a large extent. Because in you know, in Canada there's two companies that are called one of them is called Just Eat and the other one is called Skip the Dishes. They're like the Uber food companies in Canada, right? And that's how so many people feel. They just wanna just eat and skip the dishes. But there's a lot of value into getting more involved in our food and I hope more people embrace it because we make just better choices for ourselves. Yeah. Oh, so much wisdom and all of that. And it's so true. I just remember this is probably very old now and it's probably even worse now, but whenever we eat at restaurants, we end up consuming about 33% more than we would at home, not just because it's higher in calorie density, but because the portions are bigger. And when we are, we tend to want to eat everything that's presented to us as humans. And so the bigger portions we get, the more we eat. And so I've been practicing intermittent fasting for some inflammatory, you know, inflammatory symptoms that I had. And so I don't eat as frequently anymore, but we still eat out about once a week. And I'll say that I feel great six days a week. The morning after eating out, I wake up puffy, my joints hurt. It's a big difference. And I, and you know, I'm very savvy about ordering at restaurants. So I always order plant-based, but it's very difficult to get it low oil. I mean, so much salt and all of these foods just can cause health issues. And me now noticing the extreme difference with how I feel because I can pinpoint exactly what meal caused it. You know, it's just incredible to me because there are some people, actually a lot of people, because it's very common, that eat out multiple times per week, sometimes every single day, sometimes multiple times per day. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have 
have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out. You can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass. You can get culinary cilantro or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. So when that's happening that often, you may not even realize that your food is contributing to how you feel or your health, which is why some people find it incredible that food can be related to health at all, <laughs> you know, because they don't even, the, the connection is not there because, you know, the pattern is the same all the time, you know? Kills me. Uh, I have, and with all due respect to all my physician friends, including you, but, you know, the number of physicians that I've heard in my life say things along the lines of, oh, this has nothing to do with what you eat. And I think sometimes it comes from a good place in the, you know, you don't want to make people feel guilty for whatever condition they're suffering from. That's okay. Um, but also, I think there might be something in how doctors are trained, you know, through residency, you don't have a whole lot of home cooked meals, in, in many cases, and you eat a lot of cafeteria food, and maybe you just can't bring yourself to reconcile the, the, the fact that what you're eating is maybe not the best for you. But like, I've even heard that from gastroenterologists. And I have a retired gastroenterologist friend here in Vancouver who used to do uh, uh, interventional gastroenterology, you know, with the scopes and, and things. And it drove him nuts after he went, you know, fully vegan and plant-based, how many of his colleagues just would not believe that the food people put in their mouth would have anything to do with the lining of their intestines. It's like, how could it not? 
especially knowing how often our cells regenerate themselves too, right? Every cell in our body is constantly rebuilt. Some take longer than others, but how could you not think that the stuff we eat builds a different body? I yeah. I don't get it. It's because but... <laughs> we're swimming in the same water. <laughs> it's because we're all in the same boat. You know, like, I think it's very difficult to see the connection when you yourself are living in that same environment, that same culture that believes that it doesn't have a connection. And in medicine is more directed towards treating problems rather than prevention. And because changing food is not really a true medical intervention. You know, it's not giving a medicine, it's not doing surgery. It's not one of those things that has gotten into the medical training yet. It will, it's just gonna take probably about another 10, 15, 20 years before we get there. But no, I agree, it's frustrating for me too. Okay, so why do you think people struggle so much with cooking meals for their families? What are their obstacles and barriers? There's a lot of stuff that everybody says all the time about busyness and the complexity of life. And I think that's a really important aspect. We are overscheduled, probably you and I included. <laughs> I, I say this um, with uh, hum humbleness. Uh, we make ourselves stretched very thin and cooking somehow, and that's the second aspect, falls down to the bottom. And I want to say also that there's a lot of people that are financially and sometimes emotionally insecure, um, sometimes housing insecure as well, that make it very difficult to make better choices uh, when it comes to food and to dedicate time to food. This being said, there's a lot of us that are not necessarily financially and housing insecure that can make better decisions. But somehow there's been this assignation of cooking as a feminine task. And if it's a feminine task, you know, the care, the whole universe of care jobs, it must not have a whole lot of value. It is a, and we've internalized that, whether we see it or not, whether we want it or not. And by we, I mean, even the average feminist like myself who have grown up celebrating the first Canadian women astronaut and the first, you know, all the pioneers of mathematics and engineering. And yeah, I'm really happy that women get to have careers that are just as interesting as those of men. But it seems like at the same time, we've swung the pendulum in a way that's put in darkness all those, the value of all those care activities that women, especially mothers, we're taking on. And if it's done by a woman, it must have no value, just like childcare in general. Um, my mother went to the Family Institute for high school, which was basically a home economics school. And it was clearly not the same, you know, prestige as going to a more academic kind of school. But that's what women did. And you know what, at the end of the day, if you think about what it, it gave us to have my mother that cooked our food, and my mother and father also had a family business and did a lot of things outside of traditional gender roles, but my mother was always very dedicated to keeping us well-fed and making home-cooked meals and all the things, and it's you can see with her health today that she's a super strong person who can help a lot of her 
peers that are not necessarily in great health and her siblings and things. And I mean, can there be anything more important than nourishing and nurturing the health of, of children and of other people? I don't think so. But in our economic system, it's become an activity that basically only has value if it's there's a lot of middlemen along the way. You know, if it's a value-added product, if it's processed food, then that counts towards the GDP. And if it's, you know, takeout food from a restaurant, well, that's also good because it creates jobs. And as we've just talked about, well, unfortunately, it does create jobs, but it does create also healthcare jobs, not just restaurant jobs. And I think we've basically internalized that. And I'm not saying that I want all women to stop pursuing their careers and you know, be queens of the kitchen and be solely dedicated to care activities. There probably would be a great benefit. And I have some clients who are men now, which is also a cool development, and who are younger men that are getting a lot more involved in cooking because they care a lot and they take it on. And that's fantastic. Uh, but basically, as a society, we devalue those activities. We've internalized that. And we don't want to do it. It's somehow below me. You know, I, if I could just farm that out to someone else. And that's really unfortunate because I have, you know, other than hugging your kids, you know, the people you love, whoever they are, I can't think of a whole lot that's more important than feeding them really good food. So why don't we do it more? I don't know. Well, I definitely share your values in that because it's very important to me. It's always been very important to me. And I guess I just think about my journey here in my own household. I have two sons, 13 and about to be 18 in a few days. And then my husband and I have been the primary food prepare cook for the majority of the time. I started teaching my sons how to cook a few years ago, and that's been great. But my husband only recently joined and the level of experience that I have is so much more than him that I see him in these early stages of cooking, still frustrated, it still takes him so long to cook that it's almost like, you know, we have to sit down every week and plan out, okay, you're going to cook these days, these days. But for him, it feels like it's going to be a lot of work where I know that I can get into the kitchen. And if I, if I'm really tired, I can make something in like literally 10 or 15 minutes, but he's not at that level yet. Like he literally can't do that yet. Like he has to get a recipe and follow it step by step by step. He doesn't know how to just look in the fridge and look in the pantry and be like, okay, I can put this and this together and do this. So I feel like there's also this level of intimidation and unfamiliarity because there are some people that they were just, they have no experience. Like they were, they didn't get exposed to it. They were never taught. They weren't ever in the kitchen. So it feels like this huge burden that is very hard for them to overcome. And whenever you've had so many years, decades of experience, it's difficult to understand it, you know? Yeah, and I really have concerns about the rise of takeout food. You know, I was just mentioning the food delivery services around the world are sweeping the planet. I There's somebody I used to live with in, in university when I was a grad student. He was in the same student residence. He was a Vietnamese student. He's gone back to Vietnam, and he's part of the founders of this food delivery service in, I think, like Ho Chi Minhville. And it's booming. They're doing amazing business. And as much as I'm happy for him, he was a computer science grad. 
I'm terrified of the impact that this is having. I mean, I mean, if it wasn't him, it would be someone else. But this is basically in just a few years, possibly cutting the link. You know, just like I benefited from seeing... And my mom never taught me cooking, so I'm very happy that you're doing for your son. I saw her and I saw this culture going on. And yeah, cooking is what we do, right? But it can happen very quickly that we can break that link. And I think it's been done already for a lot of people. And it once you've broken, like once you've skipped a generation, it's hard to get back in it. I have some clients that I've been giving private lessons to that are in their late 60s and that have never cooked before and they're having a health crisis and they're discovering that you know I mean they've eaten some food they've had some kind of processed food at home but they've never cooked like full meals they've never made soup for themselves and it's so wonderful to see them learn those skills but I mean that's a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. You know, it's like trying to learn to ride a bike at 50 years old. It was easier to learn when you were five than when you're 50. And so that's where I think we are in this critical junction right now where we have to hold on to those skills and work extra hard to pass them on because the, the temptation of just letting it go and ordering in is, is strong. And the impact of that can be, can be, more than we bargained for, yeah, probably, yeah. to say nothing of the health impact. Such know. a gift that we can pass down to our children and grandchildren to take the time. If you don't already know how to cook or haven't been doing it, start doing it and have your kids help you. I mean, it's like it pays off dividends. <laughs> you know, at first it's going to be a little tough, especially for someone like me with so many years of experience, I can do things fast. Like it was taking my son like 30 minutes to chop one onion, but you know, he's very detail oriented. I'm not exaggerating either, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but you know, oh, I know. Having, I've heard my husband patience, cooking, you know, having yes. the patience. Okay. So give us the tips. What are the tips you have for people to get better at cooking? I will just give you one and it is to Pay attention, goddammit. <laughs> so, um, there's, I don't know if you've encountered Cal Newport, but he's like this mathematics professor that's written a bunch of books recently about uh, how, you know, smartphones and social media and everything is consuming our attention. And it's also true in the kitchen. And the phone has all sorts of little Trojan horses to sneak its way into the kitchen. You know, oh, but I have the recipe. Oh, but I have the shopping list on the phone. Oh, but I have all of these reasons why I should have my phone in the kitchen. But really, I think it's causing a great disruption to our attention. And also considering that often we feel bad about cooking. We feel like it's beneath us. We feel like we'd rather be doing something else. So the pull of not only looking at the recipe, but also looking at social media while the water is getting to a boil and things like that just gets us distracted. And we lose this opportunity to number one, wash some dishes, <laughs> but also pay attention to what's going on. And cooking with our five senses, having paying attention to the sounds, when you put an onion in the pot, when you start cooking, and like I, I don't want to sound like I like to cook because it's not exactly the case, but that's something I've discovered. When you cook an onion, 
it makes like a sizzling sound. And then most of the water in the onion will have gone through the barrier and evaporated. And then it doesn't make the same sound anymore. And that means it's time to add the carrots in the pot, right? And you would not know that if your attention is not on that one task in the kitchen. And another reason is because we're hooked to recipes and we just follow the recipe. And the fact is that if you've been cooking for even a few months, you've made a few things already and you know a lot more than you think about cooking. And if you stand in front of your fridge, like I know you do because you're an experienced cook, you walk in the kitchen, you look at the fridge and you're like, oh yeah, I'll use this with this and make a sauce with that and do, 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 you've got a meal. But if you're only cooking from recipes, you don't give yourself a chance to learn about that really. Whereas if you walk in the kitchen and you force yourself to look at what you've got with your full attention and cook something that will maybe look a little strange at first, but you'll get there to do these experiments and to cook with what you have and to create. I mean, you know how to make soup. If I push you in a corner today and you tell me, I don't know, I don't know, I need a recipe. But if I force you, you will eventually tell me, well, you need to put vegetables and you need to add broth and, you know, let them cook. We have this knowledge, but we often forget about it. We just want to look at one more recipe, right? So I think that's the key to getting better at cooking is just paying attention to what you're doing. And the beautiful thing is that we do it, as you mentioned, three times a day. I've, you know, if you have kids, you're going to do it about 5,000 times. If you're in charge of cooking by the time they are a little bit more independent, that's a lot of learning opportunities. And if we take advantage of those opportunities, then we can get pretty darn good in the kitchen. Oh, I love it. So yeah, being mindful and really enjoying the process too. And I'll say something that's very ironic. One of the reasons I mostly cook without recipes is because I'm lazy. Yes. I actually don't want, like, I don't know why it seems so hard for me to pull out a book and follow the recipe or pull out my phone and follow the recipe. I would rather not. I, I'm i just lazy. I just want to be efficient. And I'm like, I can do this. I can figure it out. Okay, I'm going to do this. And I could just go step by step and do it. So ironically, it's laziness that has forced me to learn how to cook without a book. Like I can make a lot of things without even referencing a recipe. Now I will say with baking, a little harder. You got to be a little bit more precise with baking, but you know, you're making soups and stews, uh, casseroles. You don't need a recipe after you've made it a few times. You play, you, you know, you feel more comfortable playing around with spices. You develop your favorite spice combinations, the flavors you want to have. And then it just becomes fun. You know, then you're just like, you know, experimenting. Oh, it's got to add a little bit more of this, less of that. You know, it's, it becomes a, a more fun process. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite forgiving, you know, vegan cooking. Of course, I, I remember the days when I was getting into cooking fish and fish has a very small window for doneness, you know, or pork has a certain temperature that it needs to get to. Otherwise, you can get sick, which is great about plant food is that you're not going to make yourself sick if they're undercooked other than flour, maybe, perhaps. But so I was I was really experiencing, you know, there's a pressure there. But with vegan food, you don't have that. And I love telling something to my clients, like taste early, taste often. Even before you put the ingredients in the pot, you taste them. 
you add a little bit of a spice and you taste and if it doesn't taste enough then you add a little more but most people know that for example like oregano comes in a small bottle it's a spice or a herb most people know that you're not going to put a cup of it because it's not possible if it comes in this little bottle that you're supposed to put that much so it just makes sense and whereas some other ingredients that come in a bigger bag well there's probably going to be a more of it <laughs> in the recipe right so once there's not a whole lot that can go wrong when you're cooking vegan food other than putting too much salt or too much heat as in temperature you know if, if you burn the pot or if you put too much hot too much hot pepper but other than that nothing can go terribly wrong is it going to be your best dinner ever maybe not but then you've known what you've put in the food because you were paying attention so you've learned something and next time do a little better and i realize that this is tricky for people who cook for with families my kids are let's say somewhat selective uh, my son more than my daughter there's a pretty narrow window of things he finds appealing and so i have less of a margin of error with him but i always have some kind of backup food that he will eat even if the main meal is not quite to his standards if you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> so common sense goes a long way how do you suggest we find joy in the kitchen is it different from being mindful what else can we do it's essential having said what i said earlier about how we devalue cooking even if you know that society as a whole has a thing against cooking because it doesn't you know bring up the gdp it's hard to get that out of ourselves and so the first thing to know i think is to know why we don't like cooking but then once you realize that you still don't like cooking all right <laughs> so i think a key to get started is to create joyful positive associations i love um sometimes i say fake it till you you know you you believe in it kind of thing but put yourself in the role of somebody who likes to cook or create some little rituals that will bring you joy that you own those little rewards that you only get when you cook and i know there's a lot of people that are fans of true crime podcast i don't i don't know anything about that but i know it's a thing and if you really like true crime podcast well and that contradicts a little bit my argument about mindfulness but you know what when you're cooking at the beginning give yourself the gift of this is the special time when i listen to true crime podcasts is when i cook as a reward and then the more you do it the more you associate woohoo i'm going to cook because i'm going to listen to my favorite podcast or put on your power song you know the song that gives you a little bit of a jolt the power of music is known to help us get through a difficult workout well it also works for cooking i one of my favorite things to do is to put on an apron because when i put on an apron first of all it's a cape it's like a superhero cape and i step into the role of she who provides the really good food and when i do that it seems to help me let go of the resistance i have okay it's like if you're going to be a runner well you have to put on running shoes you put them next to your bed and in the morning you roll out of bed and into your running shoes and once the running shoes are on you kind of feel silly stopping right you kind of have to go i mean you could always take them off but you're already halfway there right and it's the same when you put on an apron it's like well i guess i got to cook dinner now and that's been tremendously helpful for me stop letting go of that resistance 
A little bit. Another great way also to enjoy cooking more is to cook with other people. Um, I have a cooking club that's changed my life. We do batch cooking together on the weekends. And it's just, I get to be with these other people and we show up for each other just like we would show up for, you know, a gym class. And it's like working together towards the same goal and not being just me in my own little kitchen seething about the fact that I have to cook and I don't like cooking. So it creates a social opportunity at the same time. There's sharing, there's laughter, there's also just seeing each other caring about the same things. And that is um, just an example of the few rituals that you can think of to make it more joyful. Yeah, that sounds like so much fun. And I do, when I cook, I often listen to podcasts or music. When my kids they cook together, they put on their favorite music, it makes it more enjoyable, it helps their flow. So I think those are great tips. What about when people feel like they have a big time crunch? I know that that's like you had alluded to or said earlier, time is a big barrier for people. How can they make cooking more efficient and save time doing it? This is not a popular opinion, but I think it's okay to reduce our expectations. We have apparently, and maybe it's related to the takeout culture, and all the restaurants. We have this vision of unlimited possibilities and we can just order from the world over and eat something different every night. Though, truth be told, I don't know about your family, but when my family eats out, we have like two choices. (laughs) We pretty much always eat the same, but we have this illusion that all the possibilities are there. And we're trying often to reproduce that diversity at home and to eat all of these different meals that not only have all the check marks for really good food, but that will be different every night, that will be multi-component meals and all that. And we have to be a little bit more realistic, I think, about what resources we have to put towards cooking, including time, money, effort, skill, and what our specifications are in terms of what we want the food to be like, and strike what I call a conscious compromise. It's okay to let go of certain things. It might be diversity. It might be the texture of crispy food. Maybe that's not something you need every single day. Because for a lot of the food you can prepare in advance, for example, things that you can put in the slow cooker, or maybe you can cook them in the Instant Pot, or you can make a big batch of, I don't know, chili on the weekend and eat it in the weeknights. It's hard to keep things crispy. right? If that's something that's really, really, really important to you, Well, there's something else that's going to have to go in your other values when it comes to food if you're too busy to make it happen on weeknights. So striking those conscious compromises, I think, is is key being just honest with ourselves. And I have this workshops that I, I taught a workshop a few weeks ago that was called Minimalist Meal Prep. And I asked people, what would you like to hear about in this Minimalist Meal Prep workshop, right? And I had some of the responses coming from from the, the the audience were along the lines of, well, I want to feed six people with five different sets of food sensitivities and allergies and this and that. So basically, I want to make different meals for all of those people. How can I do it in a like one hour on the weekend? And I just want to say that's not going to happen, <laughs> you know, because your specifications are too complex. Unless you can get everybody to agree on the simplest soup, and that is what you're going to eat. And maybe that's okay, but we have to be realistic about that. And if 
sometimes, I mean, I feel bad telling people you're going to have to spend time cooking. But um, number one, it's worth it. Uh, and number two, there's a lot of the other activities we do that maybe are not quite as important. And I don't mean that scrolling TikTok is not like a fantastic opportunity to learn <laughs> about our skills and to find, yes, there's entertainment there. But like we, we waste a lot of time in a lot of our lives, not all of us, but many of us. And so sometimes we can think about redirecting some of that time that we spend towards activities that are more wholesome, that are more meaningful, more empowering for ourselves. There's a balance to be struck there. So I think it's having that sense of the conscious compromise being okay. And sometimes, you know what, you're not going to have time to eat and you will be eating food that's ready made and maybe it's takeout or maybe it's like half processed food from the store and whatnot. And maybe you give yourself grace for that at a given point of your life and time. And that's fine too. But personally, I'd rather, I think, go for just like rice and beans and broccoli. Um, it's a trade-off. Yeah. I remember reading an article where they had an economist that did a calculation based upon how much input of time it requires to cook home-cooked meals versus the output as far as the benefits, not just the financial benefits, which are huge, <laughs> but you know, also health and later on decreasing chronic health and all of that. And at the end, it ends up being a net positive thing to cook at home, but the acknowledgement is that, yeah, it is going to take time to cook. However, I will say that there is an illusion that cooking has to take a long time and it doesn't. You can learn how to make simple meals that will actually be faster than getting in your car, driving to the takeout and coming back. Because I've done this experiment before. There was one night where my kids wanted to, it was a weeknight that we don't usually eat out and they wanted something takeout. And I was like, I don't want that. I'm going to make my own. I had fixed all of my food from scratch, ready, waiting for them at the table before they came back with the food. So it was one of those things. It actually wasn't faster to go over there. I know. <laughs> and I felt way better than I would have if I would have eaten the food that has, you know, had all the oil and the salt and everything in it. So, and you had so many more veggies on oh, your yeah. plate. You know, sometimes I crave a pad thai or some kind of noodles mm -hmm. with tofu and veggies, right? And yeah, there's something I can order and I've ordered it. And every time it's, disappointing yeah because there's not enough tofu and there's not enough veggies and it's all like inexpensive noodles with ketchup uh, like i could have pulled something so much nicer at home but it's just that first step of getting yourself over the hump and i mean you've mentioned if it takes you half an hour to cut an onion yes of course it would have taken you longer but if you cook if you cut an onion four times this week it won't take you half an hour next week right so we have to give ourselves the opportunity to to learn the skills to do really simple things at the beginning because i know some people sign themselves up for these complex meals you know the kind of recipe that you start doing the recipe and then you realize oh go back to page 42 for the sauce and <laughs> no, no, the no. topping is in the appendix you know and all those things that's too much when if you're just starting out make soup you know yeah. lentil soup Start it doesn't get easier than that. And it's okay to use convenience foods. And what I mean by convenience foods is 
pre-cut vegetables, frozen vegetables, yes, uh, you know, things that are already ready that you just literally have to throw things together, put some spices and you're done. <laughs> you know, that's an okay place. You know, that's an okay place to be. All right. This has totally. been so good. I would love to know what do you wish more people knew? I wish people knew that they know more than they think about cooking. I wish people trusted themselves more to experiment a little bit. And that's it. Just try it. Give it a chance. It's not that hard. Keep it really simple. And know, as I mentioned earlier, that there's not a whole lot that can go horribly wrong. There was a time when I was cooking. I was preparing pizza in my kitchen. And I cooked some Beyond Beef. For a topping and it smoked a lot and it triggered the smoke alarm in my building that was like a weekend around easter and the whole building had to evacuate in the rain and the pacific northwest and it was cold that was bad <laughs> okay but that's rare <laughs> so most of the time nothing terrible like that will happen maybe your soup won't be super tasty maybe it will be a little too salty but the the ceiling is not going to fall the sky is not going to come down. And so just keep on trying. Know that you'll get better. And maybe that's the thing. Know that with practice, every day, three times a day, most days of the week, I'm with you on Saturday nights, I rarely cook. Um, but just keep on practicing and, and you got this. Beautiful. All right, super quick. Do you have a morning routine? If so, share it with us. I could not live without it. I... My Garmin watch vibrates at six o'clock and I have four minutes to get out of bed before my phone, which is connected a little bit further out from my bed, goes off. So if I don't want to wake up a bunch of other people, I have to quickly get out of bed between six and six or four. And there's three things I love to do in the morning. I love to get exercise. I'm a big orange theory fan or I like to run. I like to write in my journal and I like to spend 10 minutes in quiet silent meditation. Unfortunately, most days, see, not everything is perfect. I only get to do two of those three things. And recently, I've been upping my running and upping my time in the gym. So I haven't been writing in my journal a whole lot. That's not perfect. But I find that having that silent moment just to myself in the morning gives me a chance to put my thoughts together, to think of what's ahead, to experience gratitude also for all the things that are going right. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot that's going wrong in the world, but there's, when I look around me at the city and all the buildings standing up and the streets and everything, like imagine all the people that had to get along for this to all work. And I'm in awe and I'm very happy about that. So having that moment in the morning, that first hour is really key to my happiness. And at 730 Got to get the kids out the door, make lunches, and make sure everybody's got everything sorted out. So that's when the true activity starts. So it's really worth it. Uh, so lovely. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. And same. It's like you have that small window where you can be silent and still and have to yourself before the frenzy begins, right? <laughs> then you feel rushed and hectic again. <laughs> All right. Tell us where could listeners connect with you and what products and services do you offer? The best place to connect with me is veganfamilykitchen.com. Uh, I'm on most social media platforms, but really you can't trust them to keep in touch with people. So I much prefer when people come to my website and they connect with me. They can download the five-night uh, dinner plan 
that is um, showing my method for decoupling, um, you know, doing some batch cooking on the weekend and enjoying stress-free or less stressful. <laughs> That's more honest to say less stressful weeknights, but really wholesome uh, yummy plant-based food. And uh, I, yeah, as you mentioned, I just published this book called Flow in the Kitchen, uh, Practices for Healthy, Stress-Free Vegan Cooking. And that's my way of sharing the message with the world that cooking is love in action and we can do it. Keep it simple and keep on, keep on cooking, my friends. Oh, I love it. So great. Okay. Last question. Leave us with your number one tip for stress parents to prepare healthy and delicious food in a hurry. Keep your phone out of the kitchen. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I love it. That's a good message in general. So thank you so much for joining us on Veggie Doctor Radio. I so appreciate you and I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. This was a wonderful conversation. So I'm glad we were able to connect today. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.